Hello and welcome to At The 55, your home for OUA football. I hope wherever you are right now, whatever you're doing, you're staying safe, you're staying healthy, and so are your entire family and your loved ones during these trying, mysterious times that we're currently living in. This is a special episode that we're putting out. It's an interview I did this past week with SFU, now former SFU clan offensive lineman, Steph Tangay. He... Um, is originally, well, originally from out west, but grew up here in Ontario, and we connected because, uh, for those of you who may not know, I am actually a vegan, or follow a vegan diet, and I began my journey into this new way of eating, actually, while I was still playing football at Guelph in my, in my last, going into my last year, I switched over to a vegetarian diet, um, I won't really go into all the details of that, but, Knowing football the way I'm sure you do, it's obviously a uncommon thing to see. It seems like it's becoming slightly more common. Mm, yeah, slightly more, I'd say, than when I was younger, that you're seeing more vegetarian and vegan athletes, um, not just in the sport of football, but in, in athletics across the board. Uh, anyways, I thought it'd be interesting to reach out to some other vegan or vegetarian athletes out there. Um, and just kind of get their story, get their take on what brought them to, to that point in their life. And through a little social media outreach, I was able to come into contact with Steph. We had never spoken before. I didn't know about him. Um, but I'm so happy we did cause it was a great talk. He's a really interesting guy to speak with and has a great story. Um, so we'll roll the intro as normal, jump right into that interview and, uh, we still have some off-season walkthrough tour episodes that we have banked that we'll release in the coming weeks. And we're planning to do more interviews like this just over the phone. You can contact me or contact Dakota if you have any ideas that you'd want to talk about. If you follow a you know less than conventional Western diet or, or football type diet and you want to talk about it or just anything, um, you know, we're here just trying to put out content to help everyone just Stay calm during these these strange times. So once again, this will be myself speaking with CFL prospect and former SFU clan member, Steph Tangay. So in the words of my good friend, Dakota Vine, roll the tape. This is Justice Allen, running back number four for McMaster. It's Eric Starzella, starting left tackle for the Guelph Griffins. Dylan Giffen, left tackle the Western Mustangs. And you're listening to At The 55. At The 55. At The 55. Stay tuned. Best OUA podcast. I'm now speaking with uh, Steph Tangay, uh, now CFL prospect and now former member of the SFU clan of the NCAA Division II Great Northwest Athletic Conference. What a hell of a name there. That's just beautiful. Perfectly captures the area. Um, Steph, thank you so much for joining me today, man. Hey, no worries. Uh, happy to happy to speak to you. Um, so, obviously, the reason that we connected or the, the way we connected was because of our connection, both, well, yourself being a current football player and me having graduated long enough ago that I don't want to mention the number, but we both played... <laughs> offensive line and both as vegetarians um and so i definitely want to jump into that but in doing a bit of uh backup background research i should say uh you have a bit of an interesting story kind of getting you out to sfu so i'd love to just kind of go over that real quick 
so born in, in Chilliwack, uh, shout out to the legendary Canadian group. Um, then you made your way to Russell, Ontario, grew up there, played high school ball, played for Cumberland Panthers, played for the Sooners. And uh, if if I if I read this correct, you were originally supposed to go play or you had thought about playing for Carlton. Is that correct? Yeah. So initially, I actually committed to Carlton fairly early in the recruiting process. So I had um, I committed to them in the um, spring, I guess, of my junior year. So before going to my senior year, and as far as um, as far as youth sports, I mean, back then it was um, CIS, but uh, as far as youth sports schools come, like they were my my number one choice. Um, but I'll, at the time, you know, and I had told them, you know, I was still um, looking at potentially playing NCAA, you know, and uh, if I was staying in Canada, um, you know, or youth sports, I should say, um, you know, they were they were where I wanted to go. But then uh, SFU sort of came along really late in the process. It was uh, the previous head coach, uh, Dave Johnson, he had been fired after the 2013 season. Um, and so I had their recruiting coordinator who had reached out to me and I was sort of at the time was just being polite, you know, and just answering back, but I didn't really think I had any real interest. And he said, Oh, you know, we're division two and stuff. And, um, yeah, you know, I was like, eh, you know, I don't know. Um, but he, you know, to his credit, he was kind of persistent and even without a head coach at the time, you know, he said, we're, we're in transitioning. I don't know who the head man's going to be, but, uh, We'll see. And then finally, uh, Jacques Chapdelaine got hired as right. the uh, head coach. And that was a big draw because I was like, oh, okay, this just kind of got interesting, you know, considering the amount of success he had at um, the professional level. And for me, I was always looking at, um, you know, going to, to, to play college ball was sort of a, a stepping stone to prepare myself to play professional. That was sort of always the end goal. So, when I saw that, I said, you know, to myself that, um, oh, this could be, this could be, uh, an interesting, uh, really beneficial opportunity. So I went on the visit and, uh, it's interesting because at the time, like Carlton, everything was revamped brand new. I mean, there must've been about four or five different uniforms, um, brand new facilities, all the bells and whistles. And, um, when SFU was there, you know, uh, just, you know, just fired their head coach. Um, old kind of uh, small cramped facilities and yeah but uh, you know when I went there it just I can't really explain it it just clicked um, and I just sort of felt right it was just sort of like a, a gut instinct and I just knew that was uh, that was the right place for me so um, so yeah so I ended up committing there that was in I believe February or March of my senior year so and that's I mean, 2013 uh, 2014. So 2014, I committed right. to Carlton in spring of 2013 on my junior year. Gotcha. And then my senior year, it was almost a full year later, I think, that I ended up uh, committing and, and signing with SFU. And at the time, did you have other offers for NCAA, whether D2 or D1 or any American schools? Um, there had been no official offers. There had been talks of teams. You know, I had been speaking with some Ivy League schools. Um, some other schools like Albany or, or Maine, you know, SES schools, but um, there was, it was either partial or, you know, preferred walk-ons. I didn't have any full offers and just um, 
considering how expensive uh, American tuition is, especially as an international. It just it, unless it was a, a you know a full scholarship, I couldn't afford any, you know anything else. So. Um, you know, so I, I also came onto the, I didn't start playing football. I mean, until 2010. So that was, I was, uh, just turning 15. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I was kind of fairly late, uh, both at playing football and also into the whole recruiting game. Um, so, you know, that, that's definitely, I think contributed to that, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, SSU turned out to be great for me and all the reasons that I didn't think of when I have uh, committed there. Um, so, and it would have been around the same time, if uh, I'm remembering correct from our, our earlier correspondence, that you ended up switching your your diet over. Yeah, yeah. So my grade, um, my going into end of grade eleven, going to grade twelve year, um, I just started kind of like um, experimenting with different types of nutrition, different types of, of, of diet plans, uh, with my doctor. So from, I guess, grade 11 to grade 12, I sort of did, uh, from the sort of spring 2013 up to the fall of 2013, um, kind of experimented a fair bit with, uh, intermittent fasting and just kind of like a paleo diet. So you were, so you um, were way ahead of the curve on the intermittent fasting then, eh? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it was, I was just trying to see how it was and it was pretty effective. I mean, I dropped, I think 30 pounds in three months and went down to about 260. Um, so I was, you know, feeling really great. I was, I was too lean. Um, like I, I, when I played offensive line, uh, for the Panthers of the OVFL that year, um, you know, I was moving well, like my stamina was great, but I didn't have as much power or strength as, as I used to. And sort of, that was something that, you know, was just part of the learning experience. So, um, you know, so after that summer, after the OVFL season finished, I, I got kind of got back into the gym and, uh, well, I mean, I was in the gym, but like just really focused a lot more on that and went back to more of a regular um, eating habits and, uh, you know, got back up to 295, played 2013 with the Sooners, had a pretty successful year there. Um, and then it was after, I guess, the Sooners season. So going into 2014 um, that I started looking at, I started doing more research Um my girlfriend at the time, uh, who's actually my fiance now. Um, oh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, we've been dating for, I think about nine years now. So it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a good run, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, at the time, I think she was always someone that just naturally, um, she had never enjoyed me much. And so, you know, and then she, so she kind of more naturally gravitated towards that sort of, uh, um, the sort of, you know, vegetarian lifestyle. I think for her, it was more of a, uh, she was just more predisposed to it. Whereas for me at the time, I mean, I, I, I loved me, you know, uh, my whole family, we grew up on a, um, in Shillac, we had a small hobby farm. So we had about, uh, I guess about 150 to 200 laying hens. Um, we had a couple steers, uh, heifer cow. We had some, uh, bunnies, uh, we had some broiler hens as well, about a hundred of those that we raised and, and butchered. So I kind of grew up around, you know, and, and Chilliwack is also like a, a very, um, a very big farming, uh, community there. So it's, I grew up around that. So I, I was definitely aware of sort of, you know, the origin of, of my food, where my food came from, all, all animal-based foods anyway. 
Um, and I think sort of witnessing that, you know, witnessing the, the butchering of, you know, the broiler hens and stuff, it was, you know, recognized as being unpleasant, um, but also just being like a natural consequence, I guess, uh, of eating meat. And so it wasn't, um, when I started doing more research into the vegetarian lifestyle at the, uh, at the urging of, of my girlfriend, um, it wasn't so much of a, a shock to, to say like, oh no, I can't believe animals die or, or to, for us to survive, you know, the way some people never really think about it. I think a lot of people just see the finished product that comes out on their plate from the restaurant or, you know, if they don't do much cooking themselves, you know, just the meal they're served at home. Um, if they if their parents do all the meal prep. So, uh, you know, I was always very aware of that portion, but I think just as I started doing more in-depth research about, um, just, I guess um, the the environmental impact, uh, the impact you could have on personal health as well. And then not only that, but also um, really nutritional research, um, realizing like it wasn't necessary. And I think once I realized that I could still be a high-level athlete and flourish and uh, thrive without needing um, – to sort of to, to cause harm to another living creature. For me, that was kind of the big thing. It was like, I, I love the taste of meat. I mean, and if I walk by a restaurant like the keg or something, um, you know, it, it smells great. I'm not going to lie. But <laughs> at the same time, for me, I was thinking is me is, you know, a few minutes of, um, you know, a pleasure for myself worth the sacrifice of, you know, taking the life of another uh, being and for me it just felt that um i just didn't think it was worth it i couldn't justify it to myself for sure and i i can i can connect with a lot of those themes you talked about particularly when you kind of mentioned once you realized it's something that you could do without really risking your future as a high level athlete it's that kind of realization well like anything in life if you can do something that you see perhaps as being, you know, ethically or morally good or however you want to contextualize it. And it's something you can do without harm to yourself or others around you. And and in fact, doing quite the opposite, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you do it? Um, But nonetheless, because I've gone through a similar experience being a university athlete uh, on such a diet, um, I imagine there was probably some pushback. Obviously, the your your sort of immediate circle with your girlfriend being very involved with the vegetarian scene herself, not necessarily there, but of course, sport like football, a position like offensive line, very classically, a very you know meat and potatoes type position, quite literally. Um, was did you receive much pushback or any? I don't want to say resentment, but anything along those lines. Um, I mean, it was interesting because I never really, um, I never really announced it or, or presented it to, to everyone else. So it just became a thing when, you know, uh, travel arrangements were made, you know, okay, what type of, you know, when they go out and, and get all the food for the team, you know, so just arrangements like that, that's when people, you know, fellow teammates and all that would find out. Um, but other than that, like, I just really, I wouldn't really mention it. And, uh, you know, I didn't have, um, 
I, I didn't have a, a feel like a need or, or um, you know, feel like yeah, I, I'd come to the, you know, conclusion and the realization, like I, I made the decision for myself, but I knew that if someone had tried to um, be very preachy and sort of um, righteous about it to myself, that probably would have, um, that probably would have, would have, I guess, uh, not scared me away, but, but, uh, left me sort of more, um, weary of, of, of going in that direction, you know, and, uh, would have, would have pushed me away a bit more versus when I did the research for myself, um, you know, and I made the decision myself, you know, then it would, I knew that I was the decision I was going to stick with because it wasn't someone else pushing me to make that decision. You know, it was an independent decision that I made on my own. So when it came to that, I never really spoke about it with people. Um, I never pushed it to them. And it was interesting because the stereotype is, Oh, you get very loud <laughs> preaching vegans and stuff. Yep, and I, yep. I mean, it was the opposite of my, in my, you know, whether it was uh, childhood friends or, you know, friends in high school or new teammates or even my family. I mean, it was just a lot of, you know, oh, well, why aren't you eating me? Oh, do you think you're better? Oh, well, this is so good. And they'd go on and they'd like, yeah, you know, it was elitism kind of obnoxious. or something. Well, yeah, obnoxious to a point where it was sort of, you know, taking big bites of, you know, a burger yeah. or a steak and then, per, you know, oh, this is so good. And it's just like, I, I, I know it tastes good. Like, that's not the issue. I'm not saying it doesn't taste good, but like, you know, I'm doing it for other reasons. Um, so it's, you know, it's definitely been a kind of annoying at times, but at the same time, um, you know, recognize where it comes from. I think a lot of people just in general, I mean, we live in Western, um, in, in the Western hemisphere, if you look at Europe, North America in general, um, we're, we're, you know, pretty fortunate and privileged to live the way we do when you compare to um, many other countries in the world. And I think is there's nothing inherently wrong with having a good, comfortable life. But I think you also have to realize though, um, you know, what your place is and, and how you fit in, in, in a greater context and a global context and recognize sort of, you know, your life experience is so much different from other people's, um, especially when it comes at the stake of other people. So I think that's why it's important to be informed ethical consumers, whether that's, um, you know, from food consumption or, or just, you know, fashion or, you know, electronics, whatever we consume, I think it, it, it really um, is important to know where that comes from. So I think, you know, we t because we enjoy a comfortable lifestyle, it can be a bit harder sometimes to sort of, take the time and examine, you know, the sometimes unpleasant origins of the things we enjoy. And I think because it's, it's an uncomfortable sort of, um, reckoning to undertake, I think people, their first instinct is to, um, condemn or belittle anyone who, mm. who has done that. Um, I think sometimes it is just ignorance. Sometimes they think it's just funny, but I think sometimes it's because, there is a little bit of uneasiness um, deep down and um, you know, and, and there's no judgment either. Like, I think that's what people should know. The, the overwhelming majority of um, vegetarians or vegans that I, I've met, um, you know, it, it's been a very similar process. It's, you know, after doing some research on their own stuff, they made a personal decision and while they recognize that, you know, they believe that it is a more ethical decision, 
there is an abundance of judgment thinking, oh, you know, all these other people are terrible people for eating meat or for doing this. Because, I mean, the overwhelming majority of us, I mean, unless you were raised in a vegan or vegetarian household, I mean, we were all like that at some point. For sure. Um, so I think that as long as, you know, if people ask, you give them educated, informed answers. And, uh, you know, you can point them in a direction where you say, hey, if you want to, you know, um, learn more about this, you know, this is, you know, these are good resources to look up. But, you know, at the end of the day, like people have to make the decision for themselves. And so that's why I think um, that, uh, you know, you'll, you'll attract more honeys with, uh, or you'll attract more flies with honey than you will with vinegar kind or of perhaps thing. agave, depending you know, on. You <laughs> know, so, yeah. So it, but it definitely has been a bit ironic because, um, yeah, if anything, it's, it hasn't been the, the preachy vegan or things. It, it's just been, you know, people who do eat meat. Um, who've kind of sort of, you know, either, uh, you know, sort of mocked it or, or, or very um, confrontational about it. Um, and in general, I just sort of, you know, I'll just ask, oh, is there anything that doesn't have meat at this meal kind of thing? And, you know, if there is, then I'll find a way to make it work. And if not, you know, um, you know, really great. But it's uh, it's been an experience, that's for sure. For sure. And, you know, like, like any any group or any type of thing you can affiliate with, there's always going to be that loud component of it. And, you know, living here in Toronto, there definitely are the, the, uh, section, the, the, you know, select amount of vegans that who are preachy to the point of making me question my own veganism, where I'm like, I don't really want to affiliate with these people because they're being so dogmatic about something that I even believe in. But of course that's a, that's a small minority. The majority are people like you, like me, like the people you described who are just like, yeah, no, it's just, it's just what I do. If you have any questions, I'm happy to inform you. Um, it, you mentioned sort of the different resources. It, are, are there any resources that you uh, came upon sort of in your research that you would, you know, suggest to anyone maybe thinking about it or just anyone in general listening to this? Um, you know, probably the most influential book, I, I mentioned it to you in uh, our earlier uh, uh, conversation um, was uh, Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer. And if people, some people might know of him. Uh, he wrote a novel a while back called, um, uh, I think it's something like um, Uncomfortably Loud and Incredibly Close or something like that along those lines. And they made a movie with it um, about it based off his novel. This was back in, I feel it was like 2011 or 2012. And then uh, this was his first nonfiction book. And he spent really about, uh, it, it, it's, it's quite impressive, actually. The book itself is, I think, two, I can't remember if it's about two to 300 pages long in that range, but um, just the references at the back of the book alone are about 70 pages. Oh, wow. I mean, it's a very well-researched book. Uh, he spent years um, putting this together. He, you could probably submit it um, for, for, you know, as, as, as some sort of... Uh, uh, PhD dissertation or something. It's, 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 it's well put together, but, um, and it just sort of look at it from different aspects from, uh, you know, looking at it from an ethical standpoint, um, you know, where he poses different, uh, philosophical questions, looking at it from, um, you know, an economical standpoint, looking at it from an environmental standpoint, and also just looking at it from a, a global health standpoint. And that was sort of one thing that I think is quite relevant today that was pointed out quite some time ago, how 
um, historically, um, human civilization, and whether you think this is just um, you know, a natural sort of um, population control measure that occurs regularly within nature or whatnot, but um, basically how there's some sort of um, pandemic that occurs fairly regularly throughout human history, you know, and Middle Ages, the most notable one was um, the bubonic plague, you know, which was quite um, damaging to to the to human civilization at the time. And then in the 1900s, you know, um, you had the, the Spanish influenza. Um, but even before that, you know, you had things like polio, like um, uh, scarlet fever, things that didn't have... Um, uh, a ready cure necessarily available. So it was just much more common for people to pass away from that. And I guess throughout with the introduction of just, um, you know, industrialization and mass production and of, of, you know, all various industries, but also of including the, the pharmaceutical industry. Now we've had, there's so many, um, we just have so many past, you know, diseases, illnesses, afflictions that aren't an issue anymore, um, which is good. But the reality is that is there's a lot of people that naturally, you know, in in, in previous um, centuries where you know um, we didn't our healthcare system wasn't as advanced as it is now. You know, people those people would most likely have died. You know, and now those people. Um, you know, are, are, are living long lives, reproducing families and stuff. But as a result is, as a whole, the human population um, just is not quite as, as sort of, um, it's, not, it's not as, as robust through and through to, to resist various, um, you know, illnesses and such as it was before. And so, and they're pointing out that um, you look at, factory farms and how, um, you know, preemptively you have a lot of these animals that, you know, in overcrowded conditions where they're very filthy conditions, um, you know, the animals are, are overgrown, they're mutated to, you know, like in reality, you look at a wild animal, there's not going to be very much meat on that animal. They're going to be slim. They're going to carry whatever, you know, um, muscle mass is necessary for them to perform, you know, but also as little as possible. So they don't have as much, um, as much of, uh, of a caloric intake, you know, needed to, to sort of maintain that. So you look at animals in captivity, but for factory farming and they're, um, you know, over vastly overgrown compared to their wild counterparts. And so, these animals are often unwell because they're just not naturally built to do that. So you have animals that are unwell that, um, you know, some, you know, the organic um, factory farms and stuff, not as much, but you still have many factory farms that they still, um, you know, uh, raise their animals with steroids to make them bigger. They preemptively put antibiotics and stuff in their feet to try and ward off any, you know, sort of um, sicknesses they can get. And the problem with that is you're creating the perfect breeding ground for um, a new bacteria, a new disease that becomes very resistant to any form of uh, of, of, of uh, antibacterial treatment. And um, 
yeah, I think that was one thing it showed was that, you know, due to having a population now that as a whole might not be as uh, robust as it used to be before, might be a little bit more immunocompromised because, you know, afflictions that would have killed people in the past, you know, they're, they're much more manageable now. Um, and then, you know, having these large factory farms where, you know, you're crowding, you know, thousands of, of creatures together and, um, you know, an unclean environment, you know, where it, it, it's, it's, it's the perfect storm brewing together for a superbug to happen. And, um, you know, it showed a few isolated cases where, you know, some sort of bug did um, originate, but it didn't um, evolve to have any sort of viral um, capabilities. So, you know, it didn't spread from one person to another. And, and in those cases, the person who ended up contracting them often ended up dying. There was a case uh, in the States where they tried numerous amounts of treatments that had absolutely no effect on it and she ended up passing away. Um, but, you know, and so you think of situations like that and you're thinking, oh, crap, if something like that does happen, if some new pandemic does happen that develops um, a strong resistance, you know, to antibiotics and stuff, we might be screwed. And I think with um, COVID-19, I think that's been the I think that's been the real, I mean, it, it, you've had several, I mean, I think Bill Gates had a Ted talk about it a couple of years back and you've had numerous um, epidemiologists predicting it, but I think it was just, it was just a matter of time. And I think, yeah, I mean, people will say that, oh, well, that's just China because their health and safety, health and safety regulations aren't as um, rigorous as North America. But I mean, I'm pretty sure the H1N1 originated from the States, I think. So there's a lot of, uh, I mean, if it didn't happen in China, it would have happened. It could have happened just as much as at a factory farm in Canada or the United States. I don't think uh, it's it's as easy as just saying, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just China. Um, so I think, yeah, looking at, looking at that book, it really outlined a lot of different um, areas in which, you know, consuming animal products to the extent that we do is just not overall beneficial, um, you know, to the animals, but to us even. And, uh, yeah, I learned a lot from that book in particular. And then just doing other research, um, you know, I, I ended up doing a kinesiology at SFU. So as I, you know, went there taking nutrition courses and stuff, you know, was able to learn a bit more, learn to be a bit, uh, smarter, a bit more deliberate. And now I, how I plan my meals and all that and making sure I had met all my nutritional needs throughout the day. But, uh, yeah, those were the, the biggest source really was, was probably that book. And then just other miscellaneous sources I picked up on the side. Well, as, as you were saying earlier, how some of this information as true as it may be is sometimes unpalatable for people who, you know, follow a more conventional Western diet, uh, as we were kind of talking about earlier, if there are any silver silver linings coming out of this uh, pandemic we're currently in, perhaps with information like that being further spread, it will perhaps create more awareness towards, uh, at the very least, if not more people following vegetarian or vegan diets, but at the very least, trying to reduce the amount of factory farming, because I'm sure growing up in the environment you, you did, you obviously saw you know, uh, other ways of farming that perhaps is more sustainable or at least more 
more healthy in the long term for not just the animals, but as you said, for the people consuming them as well. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, I think, you know, those smaller community-based farms, um, they can be, but I think, you know, as an overall population, we do need to adjust a bit um, our current, uh, current consumption habits because, you know, like you look at North American diet in general just um, consumes a, a vast overabundance of, of animal proteins. Um, you know, you look at historically the, the majority of the world, um, you know, that hasn't been the case. I mean, you look at Mexico, South America, um, large parts of Asia, it was plant-based diet. It was, you know, legumes. So, you know, beans, peas, lentils, and, and, you know, a simple grain like rice or barley or something like that. And that was, it was primarily a plant-based diet and, you know, Sometimes you have uh, animal protein, but for the majority it was that, you know, and it was really, um, you know, it was only certain, I guess, uh, cultures, certain areas that they really did have much more of a, of a meat-based diet. So, um, you know, I just think it's, it's still, it's a relatively recent phenomenon, I'd say within the last um, hundred plus years that, you know, there's really been stuff at such a sharp intake in um, you know, meat consumption. And I think it's just, it's just not sustainable. So I, you know, I don't think so much it's like, if there's any, if there's a silver lining from the situation, um, you know, I'm not saying that, Oh, everyone has to become vegetarian or vegan, but if people just become more aware of where their food comes from, sure. maybe, you know, they just, maybe they just reduce a bit, maybe instead of, you know, eating meat three times a day at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, they eat meat once or twice a day and maybe even, you know, have like, okay, I'm going to have meat free Fridays from now on, you know, just yeah. something Meatless like that. Mondays, if, yeah. if people do little things like that, I think, and they're widely adopted, um, throughout, you know, our country, throughout just the, the, the world there, I think that that'll have a pretty, um, substantial impact. No, 100%. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Um, now, I can imagine the this phrase is as, you know, cringy to you as it is to me, uh, being where do you get your protein? So I'm not going to actually ask that. Um, because for anyone who I'm sure just meets you, you're what, 6'6", 325? Uh, yeah, 6'6". Six five through twenty five. Yeah, right. I'm. You know, your your frame, your build speaks for itself. But so instead of asking you that over, just we need to put that question to bed. Um, just perhaps for people who who aren't as well versed in in what someone uh, an athlete like yourself might eat on a day to day basis, could you just take our listeners through? say during your off season, your peak training time, what a, a day of eating might look like for you. Okay. Yeah, no, uh, sure. Um, I mean, I think there's when you're, when you're uh, an office in training, it, it's kind of nice because you're not, um, for people who might not be as familiar just with the, the football, um, in particular football, I mean, most sports, but particularly football, uh, lifestyle and in the on season, it's just, you're just, it's, you're just trying to maintain as much as possible. You know, you're just taking such a beating day in, day out during the season that, um, you're just trying to lose as little, you know, physical, um, 
gains as you made as you've made the past offseason. So you're trying to keep maintain as much strength as possible, as much size as possible, stay as healthy as possible. But you recognize that you know uh, the the season is inevitably a sort of a war of attrition, and by the end of the season, you're going to be pretty pretty beat up. Um, so the off season is really when. You know, it's nice because you really get to manage your load properly. Um, you know, you're training hard, but you get a lot of time to rest and you get to eat a lot too. And so that's super important just to prepare for the next season to sort of reload, heal everything from the past season and just uh, sort of build off of where you were the past off season, you know, improve on that. So generally speaking, when during the off season in full training, I, I try to eat probably about every two hours, every hour and a half to every two hours. Um, I do take, uh, protein supplements and this is the only area really where, um, you know, I'm vegetarian, uh, not vegan. Um, I don't really drink, um, consume much dairy at all unless it's like, you know, I'm going out, uh, I'm eating out, you know, and it's, it, it, vegan is much harder to, to, to find places that are vegan friendly than uh, vegetarian friendly. Vegetarian is often going to be a, you know, an, an egg or cheese version of a meat dish. So that's, uh, it, it's much easier to come by. Um, but yeah, really vegetarian, the only area like in my daily diet, um, where I have it would be, uh, protein supplements, whey protein still. And, uh, at this point, just being a, a college student, being a broke college student, you, <laughs> you take, you know, what you can get. And reality is that right now, hemp protein, uh, would probably be my number one choice, but it's just it's much more expensive. It's about twice as expensive as whey protein. So uh, whey protein it is. Um, and eggs. And those are really my two biggest sources of, of animal protein at all, animal-based protein that I have. So uh, mornings I'd wake up, first thing i do would have a smoothie, um, you know, uh, banana, frozen berries, spinach, ginger. Um, have that with, I normally use cashew milk. Um, and throwing a scoop of protein in there, drink that. Um, and that'd be just get something that's blended that my body can absorb really quick. Um, you know, and then I'll have a breakfast. And uh, for my breakfast, kind of I call it like a, a booster bowl. Um, but basically, it's just uh, it'll be like a, some form of, of granola with uh, I'll add chia seeds, uh, hemp hearts. Uh, flax seed. Uh, you can either get a, a full, full, like a uh, whole flax seed, or you can get like mulled, ground up flax seed. Either the ones are great. Um, you know some fruit to it, whether that's berries, banana, whatever I have at the moment. Um, and uh, and then I'll, I'll I'll break up some peanuts. Um, again, crumble them all up, put them in there. Sort of mix it all up with milk again, and then eat that. And I mean. It might not sound like much, but that bowl right there is probably about twelve or thirteen hundred calories. You know. Um, oh, the flax and, and chia for sure. Yeah, and the peanuts. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And that'll keep me going. And because I, I prefer, if I can, I prefer my training um, earlier. So, say I have the smoothie, and then I'll, you know, do the rest of um, getting ready, like getting dressed and stuff, and then I'll have the breakfast, and then you know I'll put all the stuff away before I leave for training. Um, and what's good about that is cause I can't, I mean, some people are able to eat like right before training. Um, but for me, I find, you know, I need at least a, a good hour before. So I don't, uh, you know, so I, I feel good during training and stuff. So, uh, this will keep me going for quite some time. Uh, that sort of breakfast bowl I make. 
And then uh, once I get to training, um, you know, I start my warm-up and stuff. About halfway through the training, because I have, uh, um, you know, my, my training sessions are pretty long. Because I, you know, I incorporate everything from, um, you know, dynamic warm-up to field session. Then after the field session, there'll be a, sort of a prehab correctives session and before I start my weight room session. And then you'll have sort of recovery, core, and stretching. So, uh my workouts training sessions are anywhere from three to four hours normally. So about halfway through, I'll take something that um, hits really quick. So like a granola bar or I'll have like um, those mini uh, serving cups of like applesauce. You, you often see at stores, something like that. Something that's easily, uh, again, just a, a quick boost, quick sugar, something that, uh, you know, you just perk up, keep going. Um, as soon as workout's done, get protein shake, with creatine, I have some, uh, I have some like trail mix that I make myself. Um, and then after that, so it, it, that's probably the longest break I have is like my pre-training meal and then after training. So that's why I try to have something right after training, um, just to sort of replenish as much as I can. And then after that, I'll, you know, uh, shower, have whatever treatment I need that day, whether it's like physio massage. Um, and then I'll have sort of, you know, I guess it could be an early supper, uh, late lunch, whatever you want to call it. Um, and yeah, that could look anything like from, a, you know, it could be, uh, like I'll make a, my own chili at home with brown rice and have some, uh, steamed vegetables in, on the side, or it could be a burrito or just anything along those lines. And then, um, that's sort of like my f- late lunch or first supper, if you want to call it. And then by the time I get back home, about two hours later, I'll have sort of my second supper, which will normally be like um, typical one for me would be scrambled eggs um, with, again, some more vegetables. And then, uh, yeah, my pre-bedtime snack will be like, um, I'll have like rice crackers or like uh, buckwheat crackers or something with uh, natural peanut butter on it and, you know, some other fruit. And then, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what a day of eating for me looks like. And, and that, that'll come up to about, uh, probably about 30, anywhere in between 3,500 to 4,000 calories a day. So, so you're definitely not going hungry at any point. No, you know, and, and that's the thing that's interesting is that I'm not, like, I definitely enjoy food very much. Um, you know, I definitely like have a sweet tooth, like, uh, you know, uh, pancakes or like ice cream or stuff like that. Like that's, that's the spot that's always, that's always been, you know, a weakness of mine, but, um, well, you're a lineman. Don't, don't get, don't be too hard on yourself. It's natural. No, well, exactly. Right. So, um, but, uh, when it comes to like when I'm in sort of that training mode, I'm, I'm very much, you know, I'm okay. Even if I eat the same thing day in and day out, you know, first and foremost is, you know, am I getting what I need? I'm very, um, I'm very practical in how I approach my food. And so it's, you know, even if I eat the same meal, the same thing day in, day out, if it means that I'm getting what I need to be getting, then I'm happy with it. Um, so, yeah. So again, just biggest consistency, biggest rule for me would just be like, again, uh, consistent eating from like a regular every hour and a half to two hours, eat something, even if it's, you know, just something small. And then, um, just, yeah, when it comes to a vegetarian diet, is this really the, is this variety, um, mixing up the different vegetables and stuff. Um, when, like you said, the whole, where do you get your protein from? I mean, reality is that plant-based foods have a ton of protein. Um, 
they're just they just don't all have a complete protein profile. But as you eat a lot of variety and you mix and match and everything, you're almost inevitably going to get all the protein needs, um, all the protein you need before the end of the day. So, yeah, it's it's you know I haven't had an issue with it. Um, it's been like I said since 2014, so six years now, and uh, wow. you know I've never never considered really going back at all. You know. Like I said, you know, if you walk by like a, a restaurant, you know, and you smell, you know, a freshly cooked steak, yeah, you know, yeah, it smells good. Oh, for but, sure. Uh, you know, with, with spring being here, when I go out for a walk and I can smell people barbecuing in the neighborhood, I, I know what's on the grill, but, you know, it still smells oh, yeah. great, you know? <laughs> oh, 100%, you know, and, uh, and that was something I used to do quite a bit when I was in high school. You know, I kind of, I enjoyed cooking and grilling, you know, I'd make uh, chicken wings or, or, or ribs, you know, and that was the stuff I enjoyed. But, uh, you know, for me, I feel like this is for myself. I'm, I, I just think it's... It's worth it to me, um, and yeah, I don't have any regrets about it. Definitely, and you know, a, a, a point you touch on that I think is so important with being comfortable with the same routine, and I think any athlete that makes it to the level that you're at, and, and of course with hopes of going to the next level as well, being a creature of habit is so common for, for people, whether it's in your routine in the weight room, as you described with your workout sessions, or your, you know, just the times you go to bed and wake up, and of course, uh, nutrition being a huge thing. That I think the biggest thing is just is just the knowledge, really. You know, my my, my switch, so to speak, into vegetarianism and then and then vegan was a paper I wrote with sort of the to you know the quick and dirty of it being the premise being could I be an offensive lineman and not eat meat, which you know five years later now seems kind of silly that I even had that question, but I shouldn't, I can't criticize my former self for thinking that because at the time, as you said, I grew up in a, you know, family where we ate meat and we ate dairy and and Mm -hmm. cheese and everything like that. And so you just, you don't know what you don't know. And when you look at, when you open your fridge or the cupboard or when you're at a grocery store, you see things differently just based on the knowledge you have and the experience. So to me, it's not, I, I don't think it's, I think the only thing to overcome is just getting that knowledge out there. So obviously having people like yourself um, being able to, uh, you know, not in a preachy way, of course, I know we went over that already, but just very, you know, calmly, rationally being able to explain the, not just why you do it um, for ethical, economical reasons, environmental reasons, but also for towards your benefit as an athlete and sort of showing people the ropes and slowly guiding them in there uh, into that, um, you know, into that way of thinking, I, I have no doubt that, that, you know, it's already becoming, I don't want to call it a trend, but when you look at the pro sport ranks, um, f- you know, football, perhaps not as much as some of the other sports, uh, you know, we were talking earlier, basketball, definitely one where you're, you're seeing more vegan vegetarians come up, but I think it's, it's, you know, it's headed in, you know, the right direction in terms of getting people aware of, not just that this is something that they perhaps you know should do, but that's something they they can do without doing harm to themselves, and in fact actually putting themselves perhaps in an even better position as an athlete. Oh, hundred uh, percent. Like you said, like education is key, and I think um, you know, I, I think you you have to try and remove the emotion out of it. I think um, a mistake. I think that a lot of vegans or vegetarians will do will. Will, will will turn it entirely into an emotional plea, and I think the problem with that is, um, when if your argument is founded entirely on an emotional basis, um, you can't 
defend it in an articulate way. Because um, as soon as someone comes in logically, rationally, and you try to respond emotionally every time, yeah, you, you just won't you won't come out on top. Um, it's not gonna it's not gonna convince people. Um, so I think yeah, just presenting it in a non non emotionally charged uh, view, just um, you know rationally explaining um, you know explain uh, yeah there are there is an ethical component to it that needs to be explained, but it can still be done in a way that's more um, logical and rational uh, as opposed to you know trying to guilt someone to oh you you know you should feel bad about yourself you know and you're a horrible person for eating meat you know and recognize that um, instead you know hey here's the information uh, you know just try to be more informed about your food choices and uh, you know at the end of the day this is a choice that you know no one can really force you to make I mean and if they do force you it's not going to be a lasting you know effect because you're 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 inherit you're um you're inherently gonna gonna want to push back against that. I, I think this quarantine has shown it more than ever. I, I've never seen so many people so desperate to spend time outdoors, you know, than during this quarantine. So uh, I think people you inherently push back at as soon as someone tells you, oh, you can't do this, people are gonna be like, oh yeah, no, I want to do that. Why can't I do that? You know. Um, and yeah, I think it's I, I just get more athletes. I think people realize that you know show that, hey, you can be a very high-level athlete and do well. I mean, um, Ray Lewis, uh, the, the, the latter half of his career, I mean, he he wasn't eating any, the only animal product he was eating whatsoever was uh, was fish. I mean, everything else, he was almost entirely pescatarian, largely plant-based diet, and he had done away with any sort of, you know, red meat or other meat. Um, so, and you had, I think Mike Tyson uh, was vegan for a while, Um Demarius Thomas, he went vegan a couple of years back, um, the NFL receiver. And you have uh, Mike Robinson, uh, the, he's a Super Bowl winning fullback for the Seahawks, and uh, he's an analyst now for the NFL Network. But, I mean, he's, he's gone vegan too. And uh, you know, you had more and more players, both um, current, but I think especially former players, I think when people are looking at, you know, longevity and, hey, I still want, you know, Football is such a physically intense sport that there's inevitably going to be, you know, a lot of wear and tear uh, when you finish playing. So I think people are really looking at it and thinking which diet will help me, um, you know, recover from that and, you know, help me feel as good as possible for as long as possible for the remainder of my life. And you see, I think a lot of former athletes, um, especially former football players, turning to it after their career is done. Um yeah, so I think that that's telling for sure. Well, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, so um, I guess we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Um, one, thank you again so much for uh, you know sharing this with everyone, uh, your story, and uh, once it, we'll, one more time the the book you mentioned earlier. It's uh, Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer, and Foer is spelled F O E R. Perfect, and. Uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great, great resource. I absolutely recommend that book to everyone. Um, there's been some other, you know, resources that have come out. Um, you know, I think uh, Cowspiracy, What the Health, and um, Game Changers have all been some re- pretty hyped up documentaries over the past five years. Um, and, and there have, there are some, there are, there are definitely some good things about them. Um, but I think at times they can have some sort of, um, 
not necessarily not outright wrong, but just some um, misleading, you know, claims or, or, or statistics that they present that um, I don't think um, they, they don't really do a service. You know, to I think when you do that, you tra- you resort to you know misleading statistic or misleading half truth sort of to try right. and weigh people to your side. I think once those people, you know, if people get analyzed properly or see through it, then they're just going to be more disillusioned with it than before. So it's sort of like, Hey, you know, you can do better than that. So it's, uh, there's some good things about it, but I think if, if people watch those, um, realize that, you know, there's been a ton of, you know, articles written about them after that show. It's like, eh, you know, this, this stat they presented in this light was kind of a bit misleading or, you know, this isn't entirely true. And so again, there's some good things, but there's also, you know, you have to, I mean, like with anything else, you know, make sure when you, when you take in new information, question it, um, you know, and, and try to objectively analyze it. And I think that just, uh, yeah, it just goes for anything. But No doubt. Uh, well, Steph, thank you again so much. Um, obviously, with everything going on, uh, being a, a pro athlete prospect, it must be a strange time. But, you know, of course, best of luck for you uh, moving on uh, past your uh, SFU career. Um, to you and, and your family and everyone, uh, of course, stay safe in this time. And uh, thank you so much, man. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. And uh, take care and stay safe with you for, uh, for you and your family as well. Thanks, brother. All right, take care. Once again, that was me speaking with now former SFU clan member and CFL prospect, Steph Tangay. Um, I loved hearing his story. A lot of similarities through things that I've experienced being a vegetarian offensive lineman. And uh, obviously, you can just tell a very bright guy, well-spoken, and uh, and pulling for the best for him, uh, you know, from speaking with another another friend of mine who is also a, a CFL draft prospect for this coming year. It seems like they are going to be going through with the draft April 30th. Of course, uh, all the combine stuff has been you know, thrown out or has been, was canceled, I should say, with everything happening with, with COVID-19, which is obviously completely understandable, but very thankful that they're still going through with the draft. The CFL season, of course, is going to be a little delayed or postponed to begin, but at least they're trying to keep things as close to normal as possible. And I'm just sure for all, all you draft guys out there, who've been dreaming about this season, this moment for years and years and years and training for it, whether it's the way you envisioned it or not, I'm sure just getting that call from the team, knowing that, yes, you did make it to the next level, regardless of when your first season is going to happen, is is still just a dream come true. So I'm, I'm happy that that's going to go through because, you know, I've had so many friends and teammates of mine make it to the next level and you know, anyone who's played this game, you, you you can just you can imagine what type of happiness that might bring, knowing that you've your your achievements have finally made it. So to Steph and to all the other draft prospects, once again, I know this isn't how you would have thought your draft your draft month leading up to it would have gone, but you know, all the best to to everyone out there. And uh, you know, if you enjoyed the interview, once again, we're happy to take calls. Talk about anything from just how you're spending your time, staying active, staying sane during these trying times, to just talk and shop about OUA football and everything beyond. Um, Because, yeah, that's what we do here, and we're just trying to keep the content rolling. 
um, with everything kind of slowing down a little bit. If you liked the episode, please like, share, subscribe to the channel. It, uh, it helps out um, a ton on our end and uh, just gives us more leeway to create more content in the future. So uh, that'll do it for us this week, and we'll see you next week at the 55.